mind standing for the reading of the word, please? That'll come from 1 Samuel 20, verses 16 through 17, and 24b through 34. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat of the wall. Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his place beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He is unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty, and Saul asked his son Jonathan, Why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has told me to be there. So now, if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back, Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him, so he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table, fiercely angry, and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the commitment uh, that Jonathan shows in this display, Samuel. Pray that you would help us to understand what covenant means as Ryan presents this morning, and we pray that hearts and minds would be open to this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, Christ community. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23 is where we will be this morning. There's a word that I'm thinking of, and it's a biblical word, that is vital for us to know as Christians. And while the word is important, I think it's not often thought of by believers. We need to take it out of our mental reserves, so to speak. It's a word that delves us a little bit deeper into theology, and while it can be debated, the substance of it, as I said, is vital for us to know. Because it's a word that reminds us, it assures us, of truth. It provides certainty in life when we feel like there is none. It gives us a foundation to rest on when we feel like all other ground is just shaky. This is a word that speaks of promise, a word that grounds our very faith. Do you know the word that I'm describing? Before you yell it out, the word is covenant. Covenant. This word, I would argue, forms the backbone of God's storyline as revealed in his word. It's how he enters into relationship with his people. It's how you and I, as a part of this new covenant, now we enter into relationship with him. 
Because a covenant, very simply put, is a promise or an oath. It's a binding agreement. For those of you who like a little bit more in your definitions, Gordon Hugenberger's, I think, is brief and clear. A covenant, in its normal sense, is an elected, as opposed to natural, as opposed to familial, relationship of obligation under oath. It is an elected relationship of obligation under oath. And when we look at the scriptures, we see different kinds of covenants. We see covenants of clan or tribal alliances. We see personal agreements. I won't do this. You won't do that. We see national legal agreements between uh, nations and countries. And we see marriage covenants where we get our understanding of a marriage covenant today. And most of all, we see the God-initiated major covenants in the Bible, the ones that really do serve as the backbone of God's redemptive plan. So I would argue for one at creation, and then the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and finally the new covenant that you and I experience today. A right understanding of the covenants is vital to how we understand God's relationship to his people. Now I bet you never expected to hear a sermon opening on covenants, so you can check that on your bingo card, but this morning is slightly different. Pastor Jeff asked if I would be willing to take a smaller chunk from chapter 23 and flesh out some of the instructions for us on what it means to have friendships and relationships with one another here. And I often find, and I know the other guys do as well, God's providence, God's timing over what we are preaching to be so perfect. As a couple weeks back, Pastor Patrick and Justin Oliver discussed and have started a theology of friendship, a teaching series with our youth on Wednesday nights. Even last week, I sat in on the adult community group on Sunday morning as Gabe Lowe was teaching us from Hebrews 3 and what it means to have accountability, to care for one another in community, and to spur one another on. And in God's perfect timing, I'm hitting on this today. And so I hope to do that. I hope for us to think of Christian friendship membership in the church, encouraging one another in the faith, all from this section of 1 Samuel 23. Because our focus today is on the last type of covenant in the Bible that I didn't mention, a covenant of loyalty. You could even say it's a covenant of friendship. So before jumping into 1 Samuel, and we'll be in verses 15 through 18, and because my long opening is still going, allow me to set the scene for us. David has been hiding out living in caves, constantly fleeing Saul's various pursuits. And we've seen in chapter 20, as Michael read for us, that Jonathan and David initiated a covenant of friendship or a covenant of loyalty. They are committed to one another. And further, in our text this morning, we'll see in this language that Jonathan is committed to and knows that David will be king. That's big, because his father Saul is on a massive downward spiral. He's hurled some spears at David. He now hurls a spear at his son. In chapter 20, he curses him. And in chapter 22, we saw his increasing paranoia and then his horrific slaughter of the priests. And it just keeps getting worse. It reminds us, in a way, of the book of Judges that we walked through last year. And I think at this point, from the outside looking in, I think at this point, David has to be at one of his lowest points in his life at one of his lowest of lows. He's got to be wondering, what in the world, God? What in the world? You had your prophet come and anoint me as the next king, but what is happening? You said I'd be king, but this is nuts. I'm living in caves. I'm chased by this madman. I'm destitute. 
And then in chapter 23, and what Jeff preached on from last week, and David's interactions with the people of Keilah, if you remember, he provides deliverance to them. He delivers them from the hands of the Philistines, and then he inquires to the Lord about whether or not they will give him up to Saul. And God says, yes, even though you deliver them, they're going to give you up. That's their thankfulness. And then if you skip our section, you look down in your text to verse 19, the Ziphites just go to Saul and rat him out. They say, we know where he's at. We'll take you to him. So David can't catch a break. He's at one of his lowest points. I realize we're not even in one full month in to 2024, but the same I know is true for some of you. This year has been hard. Unforeseen betrayal, disappointing circumstances, family relationships that are fracturing, and you are wondering, could this year get any worse? I already feel at my lowest, God. I don't know if I can handle much more. Well, let us learn from this friendship of Jonathan and David this morning, and may it encourage weary hearts. 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 to 18. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horesh while Jonathan went home. This morning, we have a second scene of this covenant. The first one was initiated in chapter 20, and the second scene is more of a covenant renewal, if you will. This is a covenant of loyalty between two friends here. And so I want to draw out four practical truths for us to consider, and I hope that these spur us on in our friendships in the church and outside the church and challenge us here collectively on what it means to have Christian community. But before I do that... Let me briefly address something, and if I'm being honest with you, I feel anger that I even have to do it. I want to address the recent phenomenon amongst certain biblical scholars, some so-called pastors, and others in the church at large, and that's the idea that Jonathan and David weren't just friends, but in some way, this text is actually hinting at or condoning homosexuality since Jonathan, quote, loved David as he loved himself. Simply put, that is a twisting of the text to make it mean something that would have been appalling to the writer of 1 Samuel. A nation or a country collectively is often defined by what it is against, what it prohibits, what its laws are, and clearly the Mosaic law expounds on what it means for a man to lie with a man. There is a clear punishment for that. And even further back, when we look at creation, God sets the foundation of man and woman together. That is his created order, and that is what we see the entirety of the scriptures attesting to. And even further, that is how society flourishes. And so the covenantal union of marriage is a God-designed and intended relationship that points past itself. Marriage in and of itself is not an end-all, be-all. It points past itself to something eternally significant. It points to the relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when you seek to unravel what happened at creation, then you will fail to understand the rest of the scriptures. But I would like to ask us this question. 
What does it say about us as a culture and a society that we have lost the concept and even seek to change the definitions of having close friendships of the same sex? What does that say about us? How does that further drive loneliness and individualism? How does that further play into the cultural agenda at work today? Biblically speaking, practically speaking, even God-intended relationally speaking, same-sex friendships, male friendships with other males, female friendships with other females, deep friendships are a gift from God. And our culture is seeking to redefine what it means to be masculine or feminine and ultimately erase those traits altogether. But healthy masculine relationships for men is a must, and healthy feminine relationships for women are a must. And so we cannot buy the lie that just because those things exist or we experience deep friendships with another guy or a gal with a gal, we cannot buy the lie that somehow that lends itself to homosexuality. What in the world? Do we really want to make that leap? Is that where we're going to come from out of this text? I have a guy who is like a brother to me. Laura introduces him as my brother. My kids call him their uncle. He lived with my family for a period uh, during cir- because of difficult home circumstances. And our friendship spans almost 20 years now. And I know in a small way the relationships that is described here between Jonathan and David. I can say that I love him because I do. And I understand that to be a perfectly masculine thing. He has been there for me time and time again, and although we don't physically see each other that much, when we are together, the conversations pick up like they never ended, and we played sports together growing up, we spent a ton of time together, and later on, we have encouraged one another in the faith. We've encouraged one another on what it means to be a husband and a father. It is a deep friendship. Further, some of you were in the military, and you talk with or you listen to those who went on deployments together or served for a long time together, and you see the camaraderie and the friendship and the love that forms with one another. That's a good and healthy thing. They often say, I loved him like a brother. So hear me here clearly. I refuse to give an inch to any sort of argument or any semblance of an argument that tries to co-opt what is taking place here for some God-forsaken agenda. And so those who do that with this text fundamentally misunderstand what is happening. And so it's infuriating to me, especially as someone who has invested the last few years in youth and the, the people that are coming up behind us. It's infuriating to me that if they, this culture is pushing on them, that if they have close friendships with the same sex, then that must mean that maybe they're gay or maybe they're bi or they're questioning or they should be open to these ideas and want to explore them. Nonsense. It's foolishness. And it's a lie straight from hell. And so God created us to be in fellowship with him and with one another. And yes, sin distorts that. And yes, there are temptations that we need to come alongside others and walk through them with and point them time and time again to the gospel and what Christ has done for them. But we were created to have friendship that is rooted in God with one another. And what we see here happening with David and Jonathan is just that. True and deep friendship built on the foundation of their faith in God. So this morning, after my second opening, I want us to see four practical truths that teach us about relationships, loyalty, and friendship. My prayer is that we would all grow from it. Point number one, the need for Christian fellowship. The need for Christian fellowship. I primed the pump on this a little bit, but the reality is is that we are created to be in fellowship with God and with our fellow man to have relationship with God and with our fellow man. And this comes through, in part, in the covenant of marriage, yes, but it also comes through in friendship. 
And what we see in the New Testament when we focus in on Acts and, and the letters and the building up of the church in the early days is that this new covenant community brought about by the blood of Christ, united to him through the spirit of God, is to be different, is to be sacrificial, and it is to be dependent upon one another. The New Testament metaphor of a body makes this clear. We need one another. It's not a part of our bodies that we don't need. We need Christian fellowship and camaraderie. We need relationships that are rooted in God first and foremost. So practically speaking, here at Christ Community, that's why we practice membership. Building off of this covenant of loyalty in 1 Samuel, combining that with the New Testament language of being members of one another, caring for one another, loving, serving, forgiving, bearing with one another, it's clear that this covenantal community is to be lived out. And it's also clear from the New Testament that they had a clear understanding of who was a part of this community and who was not. And so membership, where you're covenanting together with one another, where you're voluntarily submitting to your local church elders, where you're initiating these friendships and these deep God-ordained friendships in your life, and where the elders understand who they will give an account for, all lends itself to this idea. And this covenanting together ultimately begins here, right now, in our main gathering. The most important thing that you can be involved in in the life of the church. The most important thing that you can be involved in as a Christian family. It's what Christians have done primarily for 2,000 years. They have assembled together. And then it fleshes out and that covenanting fleshes out into our classes and our groups, our seminars and our talks and our one-on-one discipling relationships that exist. The Christian life is not meant to be, dare I say, it can't be lived as a siloed off Christian. That is foreign to the New Testament church and what we see in the scriptures. And so here in 1 Samuel 23, David, as I said, is at his lowest point. He's wondering possibly if what God said about him is actually true. He needed the fellowship and the encouragement and the loyalty of Jonathan. So for a moment, if I can even say this, let's just put God's providence for aside. Don't hear me saying heresy. Just put it aside for a second, all right? From a human perspective... We can wonder what would have happened if David didn't have this encouragement from Jonathan. Would he have given up? Would he have taken matters into his own hands? Would he have become Saul 2.0? And at the perfect timing, bringing God's providence back into it, the Lord sends Jonathan. Think of it like this. God's sustaining grace for David, the grace that he needed to stay strong in these circumstances, comes to him through the form of friendship. It comes to him through the form of another, through Jonathan. Saints, how often have you been sustained in the faith by a close Christian friend who came to you at just the right time? And so maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're checking us out, wondering what we're all about. You came with a friend or a family member. Welcome. We're truly glad that you are here. For many years, you see, Christianity outside the church was viewed in a way as a type of social club, something to boost your social standing. So this guy over here, he's active in business, he's got a pretty great looking family, his kids seem to obey him, and he's a church man. So just another notch in the the pedigree belt. Well, thankfully, that's fast dissolving. When societal beliefs buck up against true Christian conviction and the the conviction of the Christian is not changed, well then trust me, there's not a boost of any sort of social standing for the Christian. I think that's a healthy refinement that is happening for the church today. But what I want to say to the unbeliever 
is that we're not just a social club here. In fact, many of us, apart from this church, wouldn't have much in common, might not even hang out with one another, and dare I say, get annoyed with one another. But every Christian here would confess this, that they are a sinner by nature and by choice, and that they have sinned before a holy God, the one holy God of the universe, and that through God's word and through the preaching of the gospel, they've come to see that they stand under his wrath and his judgment for their sin. And yet the good news, what unites us in here is that God did something about our problem, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to take our place under his wrath, to take the punishment that you and I deserved. And praise God, he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. So that reality, friend, that truth affects everything about our lives. It affects everything about the Christian life, how we live, how we think, how we spend money, how we vote, how we use our time, what sacrifices we make. It affects everything. This truth affects everything. So this community, this church that Christ said that he would build is the covenantal community that we need. That's what it means in part to belong to a church and to be a Christian. Social standing can fly out the window as far as I'm concerned. My brothers and sisters, we need one another. We were brought into the family of God and we need one another. So don't forsake the assembly of the saints. Don't run from deep discipling relationships and don't hide from godly friendship in the church. We need one another. And in these relationships, what should characterize them? What should be the foundation of them? This is where we jump back into 1 Samuel 23, as Jonathan demonstrates this for us. Point number two, seek others out. Seek others out. I admit that point number one was more of a biblical theology, uh, but points two through four will be rooted in the text, Lord willing. Point number two, seek others out. When we read of David in verse 15, as I said, he's in the wilderness. He knows Saul wants to kill him. And what does his loyal friend do? Seeks him out. Look at verse 16. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God. He goes to him in his misery. He goes to him in his suffering. He does not stand back from afar and tell him that everything's going to be okay. No, but he comes to him and he ministers to him in his time of need. Friends, it takes a conscious effort to care for those in our midst. It takes a conscious effort to deepen relationships in here and to minister to one another. It doesn't happen by accident. So what would our church look like? Can we ask that question? What would it look like with this diligence, with this effort, with this resolve to purposefully do one another's spiritual good, to seek them out, to care for them? Now, of course, you can't do that for every other single person in here. But you can do it for someone. Dare I say, you can do it for a few you can seek those few out and resolve to deepen that relationship, to spur them on in the faith, to pray for them, to model for them the Christian life, to lovingly correct them when it's needed. It takes a purposeful effort and a resolve to do this, and friendship in the church requires this. But if we're being honest, at times we can have our blinders on, can't we? That's for all of us. We can have the blinders of life on. We can be so consumed with what we're doing or what we have to get done with all the problems that we are facing, all that life is throwing us, that we just have our blinders. We're focused on us and what we got going on. Laura and I have been talking about this very issue this week. We feel at times like there's never enough time in the week, and we can be so easily focused on what we have going on, what we need to get done, that we fail to be mindful 
of others. We'll be so focused on ourselves that we fail to be purposeful in noticing others. But here's the reality. Whether it's in the church, whether it's outside the church, whatever, it doesn't matter. Here's the truth. Self-devotion, a self-focus, is not freedom like our culture says, but actually slavery. Self-devotion is not freedom, but slavery. True freedom, for those who know Christ and have have professed faith in him, true freedom is found in a life of service to others, of laying aside our wants and our desires and noticing others and lovingly coming to them, meeting them where they are. It is, as Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, concerning himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if I could lovingly exhort you this morning, I would say this, fight the urge to have those blinders on. Fight the urge to have those blinders on. To just come to church, listen to this, sing some songs, and then leave right away. To not engage in any relationships because of some fear you might have. Fight it. Stay longer. Get to know others. Introduce yourself to someone Jump into a class or a small group. Explore membership. Look for opportunities to serve. Put yourself out there. Listen, we are purposely trying not to be a program-heavy church. That means that we want organic relationships to happen, but we do have some programming. We don't want everything in the church to be a program or exhaust ourselves and exhaust uh, all of you by requiring nonstop participation in things that Scripture doesn't really prescribe. But we do provide some programs, some structure, some trellis for the vine to be able to grow. And it's a good thing to seek to engage with those things. So pursue others. Put yourself out there. Trust me, you're not as weird as you think. That's coming from me. But if I get in this point, I want to say this. Listen, church and church life will never really be convenient. It will take a sacrifice all the days of your life on this earth. And the same is true for deep friendship. So let us be diligent in the pursuit of one another and seeking one another's spiritual good. Let us lift up our eyes and get to know others and put away the blinders and to come to them where they are. And as we get to know them more and more, this allows that relationship to deepen, which brings us to point number three. Encourage their faith in God. Encourage their faith in God. Look with me once more at verse 16. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God. In a moment, we're going to see specifically how that encouragement takes even more concrete form, but I'd like to think for a moment on the substance of our conversations and what it means to have Christian friendship. Fundamental to this Christian part, as I mentioned earlier, is that two or more people have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, and David and Jonathan are two men who have a faith in God. And yet notice that this in no way means that things are easy in their lives, As I spelled out, David has been on the run. Jonathan sees his dad in a new light and even has his dad throw a spear at him. No, faith in God doesn't mean that life will be easy, but it does mean that we have a sure foundation in the midst of the storm. That we trust God who says that he's working out all things for our good and for his glory, and that we know where and who we will spend eternity with. And so life in a fallen world, living life in this fallen world, We are to be about the encouragement of one another. What Gabe was teaching on last week, Hebrews 3, says this, But encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Jonathan goes to David, and he does just that. 
I'm sure he said more than what's recorded in Scripture here, but definitely not less. And so Jonathan encourages his faith. And what I've been confronted with time and time again throughout this week as I've been preparing this message, is that true of me? Am I an encourager? Do I lift up and bolster the faith of those around me? Do I do that for my children? Do I do that for my spouse? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves in light of this text. So be the friend that encourages. There's another exhortation. Be the friend that encourages. I generally am pretty even keel, pretty even Stevens in my emotions, pretty steady in my emotional temperament. Pastor Daniel would say that's because I don't have emotions, but don't listen to him. (laughs) But my lovely wife over here majored in math, and I often joke with her that I'm the constant and she's the variable. And she loves that joke, so you can bring it up to her. But friends, even those of us who are steady, even the constants, appreciate and need encouragement. How much more than those who are variables? And so I praise God, I know the other pastor elders do as well, for such an encouraging congregation. That is true of you, Christ community. It's truly true. And there have been divine appointments, I know that's true for the other guys, but divine appointments in my feelings of inadequacy, of not measuring up, of wondering, Lord, is this even helping your people, where the Lord sends one of you at just the right time to say exactly what I needed to hear. And so my prayer is that that would be true of us as a congregation, true of us in the midst of living lives with one another, that we would be known for our mutual encouragement, quick to speak encouragement towards one another. And Jonathan, if I can do a little typology here, ultimately, he points past himself, doesn't he? In his friendship to David, he points to the friendship we have with Christ. Look at how Jesus explains this in John 15. He says, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known, made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. Jonathan ultimately points past himself to the friend of sinners. The friendship we have now with our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what he's pointing us to. Jonathan Edwards, who some of you might have read or known of long, long time ago, a great preacher, arguably the greatest theologian that North America has ever produced, in light of all of his writings, all of his deep ponderings on doctrine of God, doctrine of man, all of these things, on his deathbed, he said this, now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing friend? Where is he? My true and never failing friend. Paul picks up the same idea in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my, first, at my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. Some of you have felt those words. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He is our friend. And in our encouragement, in our love, in our pursuit of others, we demonstrate and point out to others the friendship of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may we be quick to speak about the things of God with one another and to get past those shallower conversations to where we can encourage and strengthen one another in the Lord. But lastly, we have a specific example of what this encouragement can look like, the strengthening in the faith. Point number four, remind them of what is true. 
remind them of what is true. How does Jonathan do this? Let me read once more verses 16 and 17. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. Remember, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He was next in line, and Saul's family in the ancient Near East, once somebody is made king, it's expected that there's going to be a familial dynasty. It's expected they will start a kingly dynasty, and that's the expectation for Saul. And yet his father shows himself to not be the king that God desires for his people. As I said some weeks back, most of us would want to protect ourselves in those circumstances. would want to ensure that even though our father is a wicked king or a wicked ruler, we still might get the chance to show ourselves not to be that. But not Jonathan. Jonathan is a man who is faithful to God above all else. And this promise to David that he would be king is picked up by Jonathan. It's recognized throughout Israel in subtle ways, and it's what the Lord is making happen. And so credit has to be given to Jonathan. He's aware of what the Lord is doing, and he's not opposed to it, but he supports it. He gets behind it 100%. And yet it's Yahweh's chosen king. It's David that needs encouragement. And Jonathan comes to him, and his encouragement isn't just empty platitudes, but it's rooted in the promises of God. You will be king. My father will never lay a hand on you. God is at work in you. Friends, I've talked much this morning about encouragement and even hit on parts of this, but part of being a faithful and good Christian friend is knowing how to encourage people with God's truth. Knowing how to encourage people with God's truth, reminding them of God's truth. In a world that is constantly preaching lies to us, wanting us to believe lies, it is our steadfast reminder of what is true and the God who is truth that will encourage one another. So don't buy the lie that someone doesn't need your encouragement. Don't buy the lie that someone doesn't need your encouragement. Or don't fall prey to what I often fall prey to. I'm sure they know exactly what I'm going to say, so I probably just shouldn't say it. Don't do that. It is in our moments of self-doubt, our struggles, our times of lacking faith, that even though we intellectually know God's word, we need to hear another one say it to us for it to clearly break through into the moorings of our hearts. Let's not sell ourselves short. So we remind each other of the truth. We do that as members of one another. We do that in our friendships. We do that in our evangelism as we proclaim the truth. And we do that especially to a world that needs truth. But know the promises of God. Know what they are. Know God's word. Speak it to one another. And rest in the greatest promise of all. That in Christ, we are new creations. The old is done away with. Behold, the new has come. And rest in this new covenant that from beginning to the end, from all of our life, is accomplished because of Christ. May we be a people who recognize the need for Christian community, who seek others out, who encourages them in their faith, and reminds them of what is true. That is my prayer for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we, as your church, can freely gather here to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for your word and the opportunity to sit under it, and that we ask and pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. Father, we thank you for the blessings and the beauty of the new covenant, that because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us, that we can be reconciled to you and truly know you. I know that there are those here who do not know you, God, and so I pray that you, by your spirit, would convict them, would work on their hearts, 
and would give them new life, eyes to see and behold the beauty of Christ. And Father, as we are thinking through deep friendships in the church and membership and covenanting together and all of these things, God, I pray that you would grow us in our understanding of it. I pray that we would learn what it means to be encouragers of others, quick to speak uh, your truth and your words into the lives of others. Grow us in that. Apply this text to our hearts by the power of your spirit. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Thank you.